Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel-centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit ccbcpressensburg.org. Church, we are continuing our um, summer series in the Psalms, and this morning I have the privilege and delight to walk us through Psalm 1. Walk us through Psalm 1. And so if you would, take your copy of God's Word. And uh, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but if you fail to bring a copy of God's Word, we have copies available to you um, here at this desk. But let me get there myself. So this morning, Psalm 1 will deal primarily with one fundamental topic. And it's the topic of happiness. Happiness. And so I have a question for us this morning. Do you want to live a happy life? Do you want to live a happy life? One of my favorite movies is uh, the movie of Will Smith and The Pursuit of Happiness. We all want to live a happy life, and that's not something that's unique for the church. You ask any, any person of any faith if they want to live a happy life, and nine times out of ten, you will find out that the answer is yes. But here in Psalm 1, we will read that there is only one way in which we can live truly a happy life. And that this happiness is not just temporal happiness by uh, the, our, our, the condition of our circumstances, but this happiness is happiness in the purest and highest degree. Now, Psalm 1 is likely composed as an introduction to the entire book of the Psalms. Uh, but it also stands as a very good introduction to, to all of Scripture. And because Psalm 1, what it declares to us is that there are only two fundamental ways in which one can live life. You can live life on the way of, the, of righteousness, and you can live life on the way of wickedness. Psalm 1 also acts like a proverb in that it not only tells you the two paths in which we are all on here this morning, either walking the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked, but Psalm 1 also declares the natural end of these ways, of these paths. Psalm 1 ultimately demands for us to ask this question, both individually and corporately as a body. Which way described in this psalm do I embrace? Do you embrace? Do we embrace as a church? So if you will take your copy of God's Word, let's read Psalm 1. Verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like the chaff with the, which, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Let's return to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake, amen. Church, I want us to see first and foremost the way of the righteous. Here in the first three verses of this psalm, David will declare to us the way of the righteous. And in this way, I want us to see four distinguishing characteristics, four marks of the one who walks the righteous life. Now, first we will see that the righteous, this life, it is blessed. Verse 1 says, how blessed is the man. Now, this word blessed in Hebrew, it, it literally means the English, uh, the English translation of this word in Hebrew means happy. But it would be incorrect to think that this word refers to our, our cultural understanding of happiness that is derived by our situational circumstances. That I'm happy because this is happening in my life, or I'm happy because of this, and then sometimes I'm not happy because my circumstances aren't positive in my life. This word blessed here in this context is a happiness that fills the whole of the person, that transcends your circumstances. That's both body, mind, and soul. It's a deep joy in the things of God. And what's interesting is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he uses the same Hebrew word from Psalm 1 in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. And the temptation, the why I want to draw that to our attention is because we can think that, yes, I want to live a happy life. But our understanding of what happiness is culturally is far different from the Bible's perspective of happiness. It continues that motif in Scripture of this upside-down nature of the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world. If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now what's interesting here, friends, is again, this same Hebrew word, as Jesus is saying the same word in Aramaic, it too means happiness. Now, isn't that interesting? Let's just take one of those Beatitudes and take blessed out and put happy. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now what does this mean, friends? It means that for the righteous, those walking on the way of the righteous, they derive their joy, their happiness in life, 
not from their temporal circumstances. We are a joyful people. We are a happy people. Those who have been redeemed in Christ, not because of the events of our week through Monday through Sunday. We are a joyous and happy people because what we have received in Christ. The root of our joy is not found in the things of this life. Our joy is founded in the eternal, the eternal realities of what God has done through the work of Christ to rebellious sinners like us. Amen. This is the root of our happiness and the root of our joy. Secondly, I want us to see that the way of the righteous, it resists conformity to the world. Take your eyes back to Psalm 1. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. David now describes the righteous by what they avoid. Notice the downward progression of this text. Walking, standing, and sitting. What this means, friends, is that the righteous, there is no part of their life that they do not strive to bring into submission to the, to, to the obedience of God. For the righteous, there are no secret sins. Whether they're walking, standing, or sitting, whether they're in public or whether they're in private, they are seeking to live in obedience to God. But within this verse are also three aspects, indeed, degrees of departure from God. David portrays conformity to this world at three different levels. The first one, and we'll see in the text, is that the righteous do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This means that the righteous do not seek the ethical wisdom of unbelievers. The righteous understands that the worldview, that is our understanding of morality, justice, and truth, is radically different from those of the wicked. The righteous do not seek the counsel of the wicked. That means that we do not find our sense of morality, justice, and truth, our worldview, what we deem as true from a secular world. And as we'll see here in a second, this psalm will declare us where we do find our worldview, where we do find our morality, a standard of righteousness and truth and what is wrong and what is right here in this psalm. But secondly, we see that the righteous do not stand in the path of sinners. This means that the righteous resist joining or approving unbelievers in their sin. Now, we know that our current societal demands from the wicked are plentiful. I could ask you just in a few ways how society is demanding that the church bends to the worldview of the world rather than the worldview rooted in Scripture. I'll give you just two examples. Society demands that we as followers of Christ bend the knee to the sexual revolution. That we affirm those who are in homosexuality or transgender revolution or those with transgender confusion seeking to tell even our youngest of children that they don't know their biological makeup. And that they can't know it until they come to a certain age for someone else to tell them. That God must have been confused when He made them in His own image. We see that there's also this 
cultural pressure for the church to adhere to woke ideology. That is the belief that certain ethnicities are more inherently racist or, or divisive than others. And not only that, but that the, the solution to racism, the solution to, to sin in our communities is not the gospel, but it's, it's cultural and political means to bring about the end and the transformation that we need. These are just two examples of ways in which society demands the church to bend to its own worldview. And to resist any of these movements is to be canceled by the culture. It's to be excommunicated from the culture. But friends, let me tell you this. Never forget that it is better to be canceled by the culture than be canceled by God. And so if we who are in the church, we do not find our morality and our righteousness and our understanding of what is right and wrong from the culture. But we find it in Scripture. Lastly, the righteous do not sit in the seat of scoffers. This means the righteous resists adopting the most of fatal attitudes toward God. The word scoffer in Scripture refers to the individual who is the farthest away from repentance. To be called a scoffer in Scripture is to be called someone who has completely turned their back. Who has completely turned their back from God. In fact, Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 states that God scoffs at the scoffers. And so here's the bottom line. The righteous knows that if you begin to adopt the worldview of the society, of the culture, if you begin to seek the counsel of the wicked, the thinking of the wicked, seeking their counsel, their mindset, their thoughts, you will eventually join and approve their way of life. Whatever shapes a person's thinking will eventually shape their life. Whatever shapes a person's thinking will eventually shape their life. This is why David has this Degree, this specific path in which the righteous resists conformity to the world. It starts with the battle of the mind. It starts with affirming these ideologies, these fallen worldviews in our mind. And if we begin to affirm them, then it's going to eventually be that we're going to join these activities and behaviors. And once we join these activities and behaviors, Without the mercy of God and Him granting repentance in our lives, we will eventually become scoffers. Those who have completely turned their back from God. Now we see that the righteous know that since departure from God begins with the mind, in order to resist conformity to the world, the righteous daily renew their minds through meditating and delighting in God's law. Verse 3 declares, but, or verse 2 declares, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he, may, he meditates day and night. The way of the righteous, it delights in God's law. Now, for David here, God's law was the Torah. It was the first five books of Moses. That was David's quote unquote Bible. Now, for us, it is the Old and New Testament. And for as the people of God, how do we resist conformity to the world? It's through meditating in God's law. It's through delighting in God's law. Let me put it even more simple. It's through reading your Bibles. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. So don't be conformed to the world. And how does Paul say that we do that? How do we, not, how do we avoid conformity to the world? Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it mean to meditate on God's Word? Friends, it means to intellectually ponder the text. It means not only to read Scripture, but to think about Scripture. What have you just read? It's to actively engage in study. And friends, it is... It is it's a travesty to see so many people within the church, genuine believers in Christ, neglect the study of God's Word. And they think that preachers like myself, when we, when we talk about this from behind the pulpit, they think that the motive of my heart, most of them do, is that here's just yet another preacher yelling at me to, to open up my Bible that's been collecting dust on the shelf for, for years on end. But friends, the motive of my heart is I want you to open the book so that you can see and read the treasures of God's Word for the sake of your own soul. I want it for your own benefit, not for anything that it benefits me. It, it, it's like having the greatest present in your life and you're refusing to open it. Open the gift. Open the special revelation that God has providentially given to you and that we take so much for granted in our, in our country. It's shocking, and I often go back to, to, to videos like this on YouTube. You can just YouTube uh, Christians receiving Bibles in China. Christians receiving Bibles in a third, third world country. They have festivals uh, over the Bibles that are coming to their land on plane or on boat. They hold large gatherings and, and celebrations for finally God's Word has been translated in their common tongue and language. These Christians, they don't have study Bibles galore like we have. They don't have the, the Bible app on their phones. But they finally have God's Word maybe translated in a few books of the New Testament. Maybe in a few of the Old Testament. And here we are in America with God's complete revelation from Genesis to Revelation. And we take it for granted. There's never been a point in human history where it's easier to open the book than it is today. Notice the posture of the Psalms in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, on delighting in the Word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? And not only a young man, but a young woman, an old man, an old woman, by keeping it according to your Word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. You see, their church is the fundamental reason why we open our books every single day. Why we open the Scriptures. It's so that in reading the Scriptures, we renew our mind, what is right and what is good, so that we do not get confused by what the culture is telling us is right and good, so that we might not sin against God. Friends, we see it all the time. And I know that you guys have Christian friends in your life who who are they're living lives void of the Scriptures. And I see it happen before my eyes. They'll start in orthodoxy. They'll start in affirming sound doctrine. 
And as they continue to neglect God's word and hear everything that society and the, and, and the news tells them is right and wrong, their worldview begins to shift. And sooner rather than later, as they continue to neglect the word, they continue to walk in ignorance of what the scriptures teach. And as they're walking in ignorance of what the scriptures teach, they begin to think that what the society is telling them, that that's what the Bible says too. So they begin to affirm sinful practices. They begin to affirm sinful behaviors. Sooner or later, they begin joining and approving them. And they get to a place where their conscience is so seared from the truth that there's no return to the scriptures because they've turned from God. Friends, a Christian who does not delight in God's word is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You, can, you can't be close to God and be far from his word. I'm not saying you can't be saved. And you might find yourself here this morning as truly trusting in the work of Christ, but it's been a long time since you've opened the scriptures. It's been a long time since you've opened God's word given to you. Return to that today. There's nothing more important that you could do today than to go back and open the book in your own time. And don't think that you have to start reading the Gospel of John in one day. Friend, if all you're meditating and delighting in is one verse of God's special revelation to you, that's sufficient. Stay there until you not only affirm what is written in God's Word, but you delight in it and you meditate in it. And you treasure it in your heart. And then from there on, continue to take more and more until reading the Bible, studying the Bible, doesn't. it's not something that you view and look at as, as a drag, as something that you dread, but it's, it's something that you can't wait to partake in every single day. Like that morning cup of coffee that I smell as soon as it's brewed, and I just can't wait to get into it. Friends, may we have that type of attitude toward the Scriptures. Charles Spurgeon once said, Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And that's my prayer for CCBC, that we would be a people of one book, that we would be a people who love the Word. And I promise you, if we love the Word, then we're going to do that which pleases God, because we're going to love His commandments, we're going to treasure them in our hearts, and we're going to obey our King. Fourthly, the way of the righteous, its end is life. Verse 3, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But then verse 3 says that this man, this blessed individual, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. David's now giving us a visual representation of what the righteous life looks like. The righteous are like a tree firmly planted. Seth read this morning a prophecy from, from Jeremiah uh, speaking of these same truths. Now let me ask you this question. Why is it that the righteous are like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that bear fruit in their life, that, are, that prosper in their life? Friends, it's because they are delighting in the law of God. They... The source of their happiness, the source of their joy, the source of their contentment is, again, not in temporal things in this life. It's not rooted in their wealth. It's not rooted in their ability to climb the corporate ladder. 
It's not rooted in their relationships. It's not rooted in their physical health. So that when trial and suffering comes against the righteous, and trial and suffering strips us from our wealth, it strips us from our loved ones, it strips us from our jobs and our way of living, and it strips us from our possessions, the righteous still have that which is the foundation of their joy and happiness. God. There's, there's no one and there's no form of suffering or trial that can take what we have received in Christ away from us. Amen. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Well, who can separate us from the love of Christ? He eventually says, nothing created in heaven and on earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The righteous live like a tree firmly planted that bears fruit, God-honoring and happy lives because they live by what they know rather than by what they see or feel. Now we know that the wicked, what we've just described of the righteous, it is not so for the wicked. We see the way of the wicked in verses 4 through 5. It says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff with which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. We know that the wicked are not like the righteous by mere implication of this text. David says in verse 4, after he's listed the way of the righteous, how they live their lives, they resist conformity to the world, and they delight in God's law, and it produces steadfast and, and firm lives that, are, that can't be shaken by the circumstances of life. But the wicked are not so. Therefore, we know by mere implication that the wicked, that they find no delight in God's law. They do conform to the world, but they find no delight in God's law. Now, we must guard ourselves from thinking that this psalm teaches us rigid obedience for the righteous and gleeful disobedience for the wicked. Those walking in the way of the wicked may not be grossly immoral people. On the surface, they are law-abiding citizens. But spiritually, beneath the surface, they worship the God of self. They give God no part of their lives. He is in none of their thinking throughout the week. The wicked, they will meditate and ponder their families, their jobs, their hobbies, and even the weather forecast for next week. But for God, no thought is given to Him. If they are in church, their mind is on lunch or Sunday afternoon activities. Physically, they are among God's people, but spiritually, they remain cut off from Christ due to their willful unbelief. Charles Spurgeon once said of the wicked on this text, he says, The tragic reality and folly and sin of the wicked is that they have neglected the direct thing to be remembered. Namely, that there is a God. That they are His creatures. And being His creatures, they ought to live for Him. Therefore, because the wicked delight not in God's law, His word, they are like chaff. That is like husks of corn that have been separated and winnowed and left behind. Good for nothing. Easily blown away due to no substance. And we see the correlation, the simile of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. 
If the righteous are like a tree firmly planted because the source and foundation of their happiness is in things not of this world, then the way of the wicked, when trial and suffering do come, they're blown away. Because everything that they derive their happiness with is things that are seen, things that are felt, their wealth, their physical prosperity, their jobs, their families, their loved ones. And this isn't to say that the righteous don't care about these things. This isn't to say that the righteous don't care about providing for their families monetarily, having quality and, and possessions and, and having uh, investing in, in what we do see and feel. But friends, the distinct difference between the righteous and the, the wicked is that the righteous don't live for those things. That they don't find their joy. Their, their, the supreme purpose of their life is not found in their careers, for example. But for the wicked, that is so. Why? Because the wicked are living for temporal pleasure in this world. And you can look at the sexual revolution... You can look at woke ideology. You can look, look at anything that society uh, is trying to force feed the people of God. And at the bottom of every single one of these things is selfishness, is pride, and it's a desire for pleasure in this life and in this life alone. But for the people of God, friends, we're not living for this life. We're living for the next. As the Pilgrim's Progress wonderfully puts it, we're on a Christian pilgrimage, living for the life to come. You've heard it once said, and I don't care to mention his name because um, I hope you don't read any of his material or watch it online, but Joel Osteen often says that, uh, live your best life now. Friends, that's, that's, the, that's the motto of the wicked, live your best life now. Give me everything that I have that can bring me pleasure in the now. But for the Christian, our best life now is in the life to come. If I'm living my best life now, then that means that I'm going to hell when I die. If this is the best that I have to, 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 to hope for, to look for, this life here and now, what does that have to say about heaven? Friends, we look beyond the temporal as the people of God. We look beyond what we see and feel to what we know and believe from the foundation of scripture that's not so with the wicked and so therefore they are blown away in trial and suffering come thirdly the way of the wicked its end is doom though the wicked seem to live truly and happy and prosperous lives we know that don't we you can look out into our communities you can look on the news you can look on social media and you see people who don't know Christ and if you thought that being a Christian did equate uh, prosperity in this life and in this life alone, that would bring a lot of confusion. And it would bring a lot of confusion in terms like, God, why did your 12 disciples, why did the majority of them be martyred for the faith? Why do we continue to see the church um, persecuted and suffering? And we see the wicked, they, they, they're, they're prospering in this life. They're happy, they're, they're joyful, and yet he, here we are seeking to obey God and experiencing suffering in this life. See, friends, that's the wrong perspective. Because again, our prosperity, the prosperity that Jesus promises us on the pages of Scripture is not prosperity in this life. It's spiritual prosperity that we have in the life to come. That, that nothing in this life can take away. But friends, do not be 
confused. Even though you may see the, the wicked prospering in this life, you may see them getting the, your dream job. You may see getting them getting uh, just everything going their way. Do not forget that on the day of the Lord, their end is doomed. That there will be no refuge. There will be no hiding place from the wrath of God on their sin and their careers and their possessions and their loved ones and their wealth. There will be no safe place to hide from the wrath of God for the wicked on the day of the Lord. But for us who are in Christ, we have been delivered from the wrath of God. We do have a hiding place. And it's in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We do have a refuge from the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been poured out on our Redeemer in our place. Christ Jesus on the cross. The wicked, what they have ahead of them is not prosperity but the wrath of God Jeremiah 30 verse 23 behold the tempest of the Lord wrath has gone forth a sweeping tempest it will burst on the head of the wicked John 3 36 he who believes in the son has eternal life but he who does not obey the son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him Revelation 6 verses 16 through 17 and they, the wicked, said to the mountains and to the rocks. This is at the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. The Apostle John is seeing a vision of what this will be like when Christ returns. And what the wicked will do is that they'll try to find refuge in the mountains and the rocks. They'll try to hide themselves from the return of the Messiah. And they'll say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And John says, who can stand? So friends, this leads us to the man at the crossroads. What hope do the wicked have? And in fact, what hope do the righteous have? Because, friends, the, the righteous who are on the way of the righteous, they're not righteous because in and of themselves. They're not righteous because they're perfect. They're not righteous because they've made every right decision. They're not righteous because they've always lived in obedience to God. In fact, the righteous were once wicked. And this reality of our own lives gives us hope that those that we know who are on the path of wickedness, that those who are walking in the way of the wicked, that they can come to the way of the righteous, just as we have who are in Christ this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friends, it is Jesus who stands at the crossroads of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Want to come to the way of the righteous? If you find yourself living in this life of wickedness, living in conformity to the world, finding no delight in God's word, trust in God. Jesus, the true righteous one. Are you on the way of wickedness today, heading for doom? Trust in Christ and do no more. And friends, I, I shared this on Facebook yesterday. It's an essential gospel truth. So many of us, especially in our culture here in our mountains, we think that in order to be saved, we have to believe in Jesus and then add some Christian experience to our lives. We have to trust in Christ. And then some think we have to maybe do some personal evangelism. And then we'll be, 
really justified before God. Or trust in Christ and then get baptized, then you'll be justified. Trust in Christ and then read your Bible every single day for 10 years and then you'll be justified. Or trust in Christ and, and, and come to church and then you'll be justified. But beloved, you must trust in Christ and do no more. Do no more. Look to Him and to Him alone with the eyes of faith and believe that He is sufficient to save you from your sins. Amen. And if you'll do that, if you'll simply take your eyes with the eyes of faith and look to Christ, in this perfect life, substitutionary death and resurrection from the dead, proving that his death on the cross was sufficient and complete to save you from your sins, that will be enough Amen. to save you from the wrath of God that is coming on the wicked. And so the wicked are not without hope because we're not without hope. Because there was one day for, for me at the age of 19 when I was walking the path of wickedness and for a large part of my life I didn't even know it. Until God providentially opened my eyes to that reality, gave me the faith necessary to look to Christ and to trust in Him and to believe in Him. That He alone is not only willing, but able to save a wretched sinner like me. I love the hymn that declares, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's it, friends. That's all... That's all you have to do to be saved. Cling to the cross. Don't bring anything to the cross. The cross is sufficient to save us from our sins. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. So friends, for us who are on the way of the righteous, may this gospel, may it spur our hearts to continue to obey God, to continue to delight in His Word, to continue to resist conformity to the world, Friends, if you are on the way of the wicked, if you find yourself living a life full of sin without a Savior, come to cross in faith today. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for Psalm 1. Father, we thank you for the truths declared in it. Father, we know that you have spoken clearly. Your word has spoken clearly. Father, we know that there's, there's only two ways in which we live. We live a righteous life or we live a wicked life. There is no third way. And Father, I pray that for those who are living the righteous life, that they would remember that they are righteous only because they're found in the righteous one. Only because they're found in Christ and in Him alone. And it is in Him that we are sheltered from the wrath of God. And Father, I pray that for those on the wicked... God, that you would convict them of their sin. Help them see their need for a Savior. Help them to, to bring nothing but themselves to the cross and to cling to Jesus in faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.